When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super passionate about moving and thinking. On this show, we are going to dive into all things health, fitness, personal development, lifestyle, and political sociocultural. I've always been fascinated by people, and I love learning from the experiences and stories of others. This has been a treat for me, and I hope this is enjoyable and useful for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm here today with David Pine. He is the Deputy Director of National Operations of the EMP Task Force of Homeland Security. How are you doing today? Doing great, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So yeah, so for people who might not be that familiar with what you do and uh, what that is, could you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, you bet. So I joined the EAP uh, Task Force on National Homeland Security back in 2018 as a state director here in Utah. And uh, then I got uh, subsequently got promoted to uh, um, Deputy Director of National Operations at the national level. Um, that was just a couple of years ago. And what we do, so the EAP Task Force on National Homeland Security is um, we're a congressionally authorized board. Um, that was created kind of to continue the work of the Congressional EMP uh, Commission. For your listeners, EMP refers to electro electromagnetic pulse. And what that is, is uh, it is an effect that's um, both naturally occurring from the sun, from super solar storms, as well, as, which happen, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, mega, essentially super, we call super geomagnetic storms can have an EMP effect that uh, can be as great as worldwide as it was in uh, the Carrington um, storm of um, 1859. But um, kind of uh, an a more immediate threat um, is, uh, is the threat we have from Russia, China, and North Korea that have uh, super EMP weapons, which are nuclear weapons that are especially enhanced to um, have a, a, a more profound EMP effect. So what EMP can do, uh, electric magnetic pulse um, can take out, um, we call it kind of a technology destroying weapon, right? Because it can, um, you know, take take away computers, internet, um, electronics. It can- Everything uh, we're dependent on today. <laughs> everything we use, critical infrastructure, all the stuff that we've enjoyed since, uh, you know, the early 1900s. So, um, it's a, a real profound threat and danger that a lot of Americans aren't very aware of. And, and our, our mission is to um, try to, you know, educate both our, our policymakers. And, you know, I've met with a number of uh, members of Congress to try to, uh, I can't say lobby because we're not, not lobbyists, but to um, incentivize them, you know, to uh, act to, to protect the American people against this deadly threat that could threatens to starve you know, tens of millions of Americans in the event that it occurs. Wow. Wow. So what are some of the things that you, some measures that you take to incentivize them 
and what what are some things that you advise that they, that can be done to protect us? So uh, what we typically do is we have a subject matter expert. Um, we have uh, here in Utah, we have a uh, former U.S. Uh, Air Force major who um, served as a, a nuclear war planner, and he um, provides a briefing to members of Congress and their senior staff members to kind of outline the threat. You know, what is what is EMP? Um, what how could it affect us? Right. You know, what are the what are the dangers? What are the threats? What are what would the potential losses be in the event of an either a um, kind of a regional or a, a nationwide EMP event, either man-made or um, or you know as, as I mentioned, a super geomagnetic storm from the sun, mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, you know what what the I guess I'm kind of more in charge of, of the solutions. Right. You know, in terms of, terms of legislation, you know, legislation that we're pushing both at the state and federal level. Um, our state director here in Utah is more focused at the state level and more focused at the national uh, level and, and those types of efforts. And um, uh, just so your listeners know, I've been writing a, a series of articles um, in the, the national interest at www.nationalinterest.org, kind of outlining uh, what we need to do. Um, to uh, ensure peace with Russia throughout this Ukraine crisis. And we can talk about that in, a, in the yeah. next segment. Um, but uh, also on uh, our, our main website is um, www.emptaskforce.us. And that's where I, I have uh, one, one of our, our latest uh, task force reports that I published back in October that's available to your listeners. Uh, we also have our executive director, uh, Dr. Peter Prias. Uh, published a number of uh, books. Uh, he's much more prolific than I am. Articles um, that are are very educational and very important for both your listeners and you know American citizens at large, as well as uh, our our uh, you know U.S. leaders uh, to read as well. Awesome, yeah. So maybe you can start with talking about what are some of the uh, solutions you think that are available. So uh, President Trump has he's been their best president so far in terms of uh, so, you know solutions. He off, he uh, signed an executive order that um, you know was designed to try to increase um, you know measures to prepare for um, you know EMP event and, and to increase our um, resiliency you know of our critical infrastructure against uh, those types of, of events and attacks. Right. Um, but uh, principally at this point, what's missing is the actual funding to harden the grid. So when I say harden the grid, I mean, um, you know, our critical infrastructure, the main element of we, we believe is the um, elect- US electrical power grid. That's kind of, you know, it's really the, 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 uh, the source of, of so many, you know, things that we, we need and enjoy, including running water. You know, if we had a net, you know, a lot of people have, um, times when their power gets knocked out. But if it's just a, a limited uh, um, power outage, then they still have running water. But in the event of a, a nationwide, you know, or a large scale, um, not, you know, takedown of, of the power grid, they would lose running water. So people can't live without water for more than a few days. So that's, that's a pretty critical need. Um, so uh, that's one of the reasons that, that we uh, we need that as well as, you know, refrigeration, you know, in terms of food distribution centers, even if the cars were knocked out, if they could at least, 
you know, preserve the food and, and maybe get them to people in a, a, a slower way. Um, so that that's important as well. But yeah, critic, uh, the main focus that we have is is funding. We need government funding um, and also let you know legislation to incentivize the power companies um, to uh, take measures to protect not only against EMP attack and super solar storms, but uh, but cyber attack as well. And they're all connected. You can yeah. do them all for this for the same same uh, price essentially. So can you talk a little bit about how they're connected and what is the danger that we are uh, facing? How how precarious is this situation? So, um, you know, I'm not really a technical expert, so I'm, I'm not going to speak okay. much on on the connection between you know how hardening is um, it, it can be done against cyber and EMP at the same time. But in terms of our threat, the threat level has gone way up. You know, we've seen. Um, a lot of people would describe the threat level for EMP, EMP attack as, as minimal until recently. You know, now it's it's more in the, the moderate to, you know, uh, I mean, I consider it to be in the high range, unfortunately, because of what we have going on with, uh, with Ukraine um, that has really caused me to focus um, not only on my efforts to try to uh, you know, motivate uh, a change in national security strategy at the national level and to, to support this kind of important, you know, EMP hardening legislation or grid hardening legislation, uh, but also to, to uh, encourage people to, to take uh, personal action as well to ensure they have sufficient food, water, and medicine in their own homes. Yeah, and I, I know a lot of people are talking about that and a lot of people are saying how crazy that sounds and they, a lot of people just really can't, you know, wrap their heads around it and fathom how in this, you know, modern age that that would even be something to contend with, but right. yeah. Yeah, so uh, going further in terms of uh, the Ukraine issue, um, you know, first of all, we have this major foreign policy schism or debate between, you know, the two sides uh, one is, I, I call them, I guess, Trump conservatives, America first conservatives, uh, folks like uh, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, uh, Paul uh, Gozer in the House, and other, you know, staunch America first conservatives um, that are saying, you know, and Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, obviously, is, is one yeah. of the, the, the best voices for, uh, to articulate what an America first national security strategy. Definitely in the, the mainstream media, I would say, yeah, yeah for sure. Very different, absolutely. So um, yeah, essentially what I believe it, it should be is, is to pursue policies you know, um, that um, serve the American interests. You know, we've been fighting all these wars that uh, you know, we fight, fight in other countries' wars, essentially getting their civil wars, you know, defending Ukraine's borders, but not our own. You know, we've yeah. had two million illegal immigrants that have, that have uh, in, invaded our country. And obviously, you know, I'm not trying to compare the, you know, the threat of illegal immigrants uh, coming to our country to uh, a Russian invasion. Uh, but, you know, there are very, there are a number of um, security concerns yeah. uh, through that. I mean, I was just watching Fox News today and they talked about how Russians and Ukrainians were, were found on the borders. I mean, there have been Chinese nationals uh, crossing the borders um, among the illegals, and very few of them are from Mexico. Uh, many for uh, Central and Latin America, you know, obviously much much less of a threat. But you know, we've had uh, Islamists come to from uh, all across the Middle East that could potentially form terror cells and 
there's all kinds of issues like that. Uh, if you should have learned anything from uh, the 90s and the early 2000s. I think that's a good piece of history to revisit. It yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly Reagan's initial amnesty of 3 million illegals back in 86 didn't, didn't go quite the way that, uh, that advocates wanted it to go or, or said that it would go. They may have had ulterior motives. But uh, I think it's really important that, um, you know, we, we ask the question to our, uh, to our elected leaders, you know, what is, what, what is the security interest that is threatened um, in, in Ukraine? I mean, there's literally no vital security interest in Ukraine at all. Uh, certainly, we, you know, we have a general interest in wanting to ensure that uh, peoples, you know, remain free of oppression or free of foreign takeover. Sure. Uh, but that should not be military in the case of in cases where that are not uh, vital interests of the United States. Right. Um, we face, you know, we live in a world. I grew up in a world where there was a rough nuclear parity between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and that enabled us to keep the nuclear peace along with the Yalta Agreement, which kind of established spheres of influence, um, you know, on the Soviet side in Eastern Europe and on the U.S. side in, in Western Europe. Uh, but today, that uh, that military balance, a nuclear balance, is largely dis dis disintegrated. I mean, um, Russia and China today have uh, over twice as many strategic nuclear weapons as we have. Russia has four and a half times overall, including Peter and tactical nuclear weapons. So, and not even, not one member of, of Congress on the Republican side is pushing to increase the number of um, strategic nuclear weapons that we have deployed. Um, in response to this massive Russian and, and especially Chinese nuclear buildup. And so there's just a, a major, you know, uh, there's a huge amount of ignorance, I think, uh, at the U.S. policymaking level. There's been a dereliction of duty and failing to do anything really to, to really protect the American people against the EMP threat. Uh, not a lot this, at the cyber defense level and very little at the national missile defense level, you know. Reagan supposedly collapsed the Soviet Union with, uh, you know, uh, the strategic defense initiative, but that was never even built. So obviously, it, it's an impossibility that he caused the Soviets to collapse over something that was never built. But the point is, the fact that we don't have it, you know, 40 years later, is a little troubling because I, I, we, have, we have very little defense against nuclear missiles. Yeah, which is really quite horrifying. I I think there's a a lot that we, in hindsight, learn about, you know, the Cold War that was not quite what was presented to us through our mainstream media. And yeah, we were sure. certainly not, uh, we were definitely not as protected as we may have thought we were. And we may not have been there for the same reasons we thought we were. Right. So uh, a lot of these things that we don't see until years later. Um, what do you think uh, the... Well, I, I, I'm i concerned about it. this is in relation to the threats that we're possibly facing and the danger mm -hmm. that, you know, there is the concern of, of Americans being dragged in. You were talking about, you know, fighting other people's war. Um, and through NATO, there is the possibility that, you know, we could be uh, dragged into a kinetic kind of a, a war. Yeah. What What are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on how much of that is a real threat versus uh, an EMP or cyber type of threat or both uh, using one to uh, disarm us so that we're less secure for the other. 
Yeah, it's a huge threat. But uh, first, let's yeah, let's look at look at history. And, uh, you know, in terms of entangling alliances, we were, you know, we were warned against entangling alliances by um, our first president, George Washington. We were. uh, He was our greatest president, I believe, and very visionary. And he saw the danger that, um, you know, to America's national security, our freedom and our independence and sovereignty uh, to, you know, joining these European alliances and potentially being dragged into wars that um, are completely unnecessary and against our national security interests in the first place. And that would certainly be the case with Ukraine. The irony is we don't have any security agreement with Ukraine. Ukraine's not part of NATO. So what's all the fuss about Ukraine is, is kind of my point, I guess, Tucker Carlson's point and others um, that are trying to argue in, in favor of more of a Trump conservative type policy. You know, the president, former president Donald Trump, he was interviewed by uh, Glenn Beck recently and he, he pretty much, he didn't come out, you know, exactly and say it, but he he definitely left you with the impression. And he said that we shouldn't be in Ukraine. So we shouldn't be involved in Ukraine. And he essentially said that, uh, you know, if he was president, he would ensure peace with Russia. And he's, you know, uh, when some, when our conservatives say that, they get accused of, uh, you know, being like kind of not Russian agents, but pro-Russia. But to, well, to be in favor of against a, a war we can't win with the, the mightiest nuclear superpower in the world is not being pro-Russia. It's being pro-American. Exactly. And right. I, I think this is, you know, uh, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but I think this is a lot of the uh, psychological warfare games that they play um, mm-hmm. where they try to, you know, I, what is what is the connotation of being pro-Russia? It's that, you know, suddenly we're pro-communistic, uh, pro-Bolshevik right. you know, type uh, uh, initiatives. And, uh, you know, there's been tremendous shifts in Russia. And mm-hmm. what, to support America, as you said, American interests, if it's aligned with, you know, peace with Russia, doesn't necessarily mean that we are suddenly, you know, saying that we're supporting, you know, a global communistic takeover. Yeah. Um, I do, that. my opinion that is that it is a part of a, uh, you know, the, these are the psychological warfare games that they play to try and pit people um, and create, you know, categories and camps for people to fall into because people glob onto, you know, identities and- yeah. Way that That's they, absolutely right. It's a way to corral people to uh, garner the interest and the motivation to, uh, because people need to acquiesce. You need the support in order to engage in the warfare, right? Yeah, I mean it's inevitable. In, in all of history, we we've, we've had you know kind of uh, war propaganda that's that's pushed by the state or or you know state influence. I would say state controlled media because thankfully we don't have that like you know Russia and China have. Right. But state, state influence. Pretty close. We've got this. Uh, yeah, we did. So like, well, with the Biden administration, we did. The Trump administration was kind of like part, an arm of the, the Democrat Party. So it was clearly part of the Democrat anti-state opposition. But uh, yeah, currently it's it's just a propaganda arm of the Biden administration, essentially. Yeah. Um, but not only that, you know, uh, if we look at history and, you know, entangling alliances, um, great power alliances in the uh are what caused transformed world the uh, World War One and Two from regional conflicts uh, in, in the case of World War One in the Balkans between Russia and Germany and Austria Hungary, mm-hmm. and uh, and the Second World War between Germany and Poland and ultimately between jo- Germany Poland and the Soviet Union mm-hmm. into world wars, 
And if there hadn't been great, these great power alliances, those, those uh, wars would have remained localized and of, you know, uh, at least in the case of World War I, a very limited duration would have been a quick war, um, potentially. I mean, it could have it definitely expanded to, you know, full scale war between Germany and, and uh, the central powers. Um, but uh, in terms of life's loss, you know, the cost would have been so much less. And that's exactly what's, you know, uh, what's threatening us today. President Trump, uh, I was reading an article today that talked about, uh, you know, a recent book that um, based on interviews with senior Trump officials that said that Trump stated multiple times in 2018 and 2020 that he wanted to get us out of NATO, you know, and, and NATO is really kind of, the sacred cow for uh, neoconservatives and liberal internationalists. I, ca I call them, I, I call it an unholy alliance between neo neoconservative Republicans and, and the liberal internationalists and Democrat side um, that are really, you know, kind of the globalists that are, are trying to get us into these um, no win unnecessary wars that, you know, in this case, at least threaten potential, you know, nuclear or EMP war, which could, uh, bring the war home to, to the American people as, as no war has ever done before. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I, I think Trump was very visionary in that, you know, U.S. national security would be better protected today outside of NATO. You know, I mean, NATO was critical in helping us to, you know, defeat the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. But since then, especially, you know, with certainly in terms of uh, following, you know, the expansion of NATO eastward that's gotten us into this mess with Russia over Ukraine uh, today, it's it's become uh, what I call kind of a noose around our necks that yeah. threatens to sink us down into, um, you know, into into war. Yeah. So what are some things that can be done to secure peace with Russia so that we don't get into this very nasty mess? <laughs> so I've I've written a number of articles. I think four recent ones that uh, address that exactly. Uh, and again, you can find them on the na nationalinterest.org. Um, and um, that it, so my one of the key proposals, or one of the um, easiest proposals, is simply just to tell tell Russia that Ukraine will never be admitted to, to NATO. And and some people say, well, that's a huge concession. Uh, you know, and certainly we could ask for something in return from Russia for that declaration, but it's really not a concession at all. It's a statement of fact. Uh, NATO's requirements for new members into, you know, into NATO um, include, you know, having a state having borders that are not disputed, not having any foreign troops occupying their their, their territory, because essentially, if, you, if we were to admit Ukraine into NATO today, we would be in an undeclared war with the Russian Federation. So that's that's not something that um, would would even be considered is being considered. And, and Biden reportedly told the president of Ukraine exactly that. And then they, you know, once that story came out in CNN, they immediately tried to try to deny and refute it. But uh, um, I, I believe that story is accurate. Um, France and Germany, you know, Bush and Obama, uh, President George uh, W. Bush and Barack Obama tried to get NATO to admit Ukraine uh, back in the 2008, 2009 timeframe, but France and Germany opposed it. So uh, that's kind of the, the first, the easiest solution is, um, and it would be even better if, if the president of Ukraine could say, could make that statement and say, Ukraine is not gonna join NATO uh, ever, and we're gonna be permanently neutral. And that would take away Russia's biggest uh, pretext for war. 
But beyond that, you know, they've they've uh, uh, issued um, some draft security agreements to the U.S. and NATO, which um, I believe actually have some beneficial uh, elements to it. And one is that we pull pull all of our troops out of Eastern Europe. And some people, again, some people say, well, that's a huge concession. We only have 5,000 U.S. troops in Eastern Europe. You know, so it's not a huge concession. It's something we, we've only had since 2016. So, you know, all this time from, you know, uh, the, the you know, when NATO was uh, expanded in, in 1999 to 2016, we had zero troop, you know, Western troops in Eastern Europe. And no one... No one said, oh, NATO is going to collapse because we don't have any troops in Eastern Europe. But, you know, essentially that's that's kind of the way they're presenting it. So, um, you know, that's those are two things we can do to uh, increase peace with Russia. Uh, the other thing is to potentially, you know, have reciprocal quid pro quo agreements. You know, so we're not accept. In other words, we're not accepting their demands, essentially. Um, they're bullying. We're, we're saying, OK, we'll do that. We'll do this element of, the, of your proposal in exchange for a reciprocal concession on Europe. So I've actually been covered in the international press. I was interviewed on Russian uh, TV uh, just a couple of weeks ago about that. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that we surrender. You know, a lot of people say, well, you, if we accept their agreement, that's surrendering. Well, it's not because there are very important concessions that we, that we should get in return. And, and I've said, described this as a golden opportunity for President Biden to, to redefine our um, relationship with Russia on, a, on much more friendly terms. You know, they've talked about how China is, is the number one threat we should, we should uh, be uh, worried about right now. But Russia and China have been close military allies. So, what is that saying? You know, the uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't necessarily always believe I always go for that because I think it didn't work out for us so well in, in the World War II with the, the Soviet Union. Um, I strongly oppose the, our alliance with the Soviet Union and have been very critical of that back in World War II. Right. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not advocating that we follow that. I, I think that people yeah, should pay more attention to the fact that maybe some of our enemies may not necessarily be friends, but they see us as their enemies. And so they're aligning with each other. Um, exactly. I think that, you know, uh, so the Middle East should show us something about that. Yeah. Uh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Our decision to invade Iraq and, and destroy the balance of power uh, was a huge mistake on the part of George W. Bush. Um, Iraq had actually fought a, a war against terror, Iranian terror, um, during the 80s and 90s, and uh, you know, and we opted to destroy them. Reagan actually said, you know, we won't allow Iraq to, to be defeated, to lose the war with Iran. So he was a much more far-sighted uh, visionary leader than George W. Bush, certainly. Yeah. But um, yeah, so but they uh, had different interests. That, that that's entirely possible as well. But. Yeah. Yeah, well, different interests. That's interesting you bring that up. So there's a new book uh, uh, called Red Handed by Peter Schweitzer that talks about uh, the communist Chinese business uh, uh, family connections of the Bush family, of the Biden family in particular, uh, Pelosi, I mean, um, Senator McConnell, uh, former Speaker John Boehner. I mean, the corruption at the highest levels of the U.S. government is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, and the, uh, the the ties that they have that are not aligned with American interests are, 
very, very concerning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of other things that we can do, um, so back in 2019, I, I wrote about the need for a um, U.S. to sign a sphere of influence agreement with, uh, with Russia and China. That was basically what Churchill did in the, at the fourth uh, Moscow conference and at Yalta, of course. And I, I oppose that. You know, I, I, let me be clear. I, I oppose Yalta. I thought that it was a bad deal. We shouldn't surrender. You know, as you said, we shouldn't surrender uh, tens of millions or actually 140 million uh, innocents to, you know, the communists. But we're not dealing with the communists in Russia anymore, right? The communists in collapse, and certainly they have ties to the old Soviet Union, but it's, it's not the genocidal communism that we, we saw then. Um, that actually is the case in China. And yeah. yet, and they went ahead and, and attacked us uh, with a, a biological weapon with COVID-19. It's killed um, nearly 900 million Americans, or 900, sorry, 900,000, 900,000 Americans, almost a million, and you know, we're worried about Russia. You know, Russia hasn't has hasn't really done much against the U.S. Uh, over the past few decades, but China certainly has. And, China and certainly has, and uh, I, I would argue the the global elite, you know, fascist uh, corporate technocracy has. Right. Uh, they're certainly in, you know, they're they're certainly in an alliance with China. So they are. Yeah, and they and they likely stole uh, stole the last presidential election collusion with the Democrats. Yeah. Uh, or at least, at least the evidence suggests that. Yeah. Um, and the last thing that I think we need to do is we need to sign a uh, treaty of friendship, cooperation, and mutual assistance with Russia as kind of the capstone of our new relationship that would, um, I believe, it would essentially neutralize their alliance with, um, with China because what, what that kind of is, is it's a political alliance agreement. So if we were allies, even non-military allies with Russia, then they would have, um, you know, feel more strongly and more secure about about their security and they wouldn't uh join you know threaten to join china in attacking us or attack us on their own uh and then china would be less likely to attack us without russian russian backing um and then we, there are other initiatives we could pursue with china such as signing a non-aggression pact um, telling chinese leaders that we would not intervene militarily in the event of a conflict with taiwan which is their number that. number one red line you know just just as just as uh, Russia's number one red line is stay out of Ukraine and we keep pissing them off. Excuse my language. <laughs> yeah. Picking yeah. them off, right? Um, needlessly. Poking the bear is probably a better uh, yeah. analogy. Sure. Um, so, you know, when you're, when we're militarily superior as we were for, for decades, you know, a few decades after World War, War II, and we have nuclear superiority for 25 years straight, then, you can you can pursue these policies and not have um, you know severe threats or reactions against them. But when you're in, inferior, when we've lapsed into military and nuclear inferiority against our, our the, military seems to see wokeism as a priority over strengthening our yeah yeah then it's it's uh, much more dangerous. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I I'm curious your thoughts on. Uh, why there isn't more of an initiative and uh, a movement towards some of these, you know, protective strategic alliances and why some of the priorities like of our military, uh, you know, are not concerned with actual militaristic strength and more concerned with, you know, some of these woke policies. Um, they, it doesn't seem to be in the 
you know, any any doing any service to America and the protection of America. So yeah. what, what do you think is behind that? What's the motive there? Well, I think that, you know, we've been, we're, we continue to be propagandized essentially um, by, you know, the liberal establishment, the media and the neoconservatives into believing that the U.S. is still the, you know, the sole surviving uh, superpower. You know, we can do anything we want. We can invade any country in the world and allow ourselves to be invaded by illegal immigrants and there will be no national security repercussions whatsoever. You know, we can, uh, we can export our best jobs, best, you know, military technological industries to, to China and, and uh, you know, trillions of dollars. And, you know, they won't use that to build up their military and their nu- nuclear arsenals they have. So, uh, yeah, it's a real, it's, it's a real problem. Naive. Yeah, yeah it's, very, it's absolute na- naivete. And, not, and not behind the people who are creating this propaganda, but behind the people who are buying into it. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of Republican leaders, um, you know, think that we can threaten nuclear weapons. I mean, Senator Roger Wicker just recently um, stated um, on national TV or in an interview that, that we, you know, we should threaten the use of nuclear weapons against Russia if they dare invade Ukraine that we have no alliance with. So um, there's a real dearth of strategic thinking, um, you know, in terms of how to redefine our um, security relationship with Russia in a, in a way that's remix the international order uh, in a much more, to be much more beneficial, much more safer and secure from a US standpoint. I mean, we, there's a belief that um, the liberal international order that we have today is favors the US. Um, and certainly, I mean, the US has been able to get away with a lot, you know, in terms of invading Iraq and, um, you know, occupying part of the Middle East and, and whatnot and expanding NATO eastward. Uh, but, but, you know, Every bad policy has a day of reckoning. I'm, I'm increasingly fearful the day of reckoning is is on our doorstep. Yeah, it it's definitely seems like it's increasingly approaching <laughs> and uh, rapidly so, which is quite yeah. terrifying. Um, yes. So there's, um, uh, in further answer to your question, there's different schools of thought. You know, yeah. the dominant school of thought is, we should pursue a, a, a strategy which is which we kind of realists call liberal uh, hegemony, and that is a, this you know strategy that based what I basically described that, that we can you know uh, the U.S. should try to dominate. We should uh, try to defend every country from Russia or China, no matter how small or insignificant, and that we need to you know counter um, and oppose them you know at their borders. So it means sending our ships into the Taiwan Strait. Um, you know, to, to antagonize China. Um, it means, uh, you know, extra naval exercises in the Black Sea and the, the Baltic Seas, which are, you know, should, are mainly kind of Russian spheres uh, of influence. And, um, and then, you know, threatening to expand NATO further into the former Soviet Union. Um, those are all really, really bad policies that, you know, hurt our national security much more than they, they help. And, and that's, as I think you kind of suggested earlier, it's kind of what, what has caused Russia and China to align together in an alliance of convenience. It's a very real military alliance, very close, yeah. but it might not exist if the if I would say uh, it'd be very unlikely to exist if the U.S. had not been uh, pursuing all these provocative policies of confronting Russia and China along their borders. Uh, what I've been advocating, other realists, foreign policy experts have been advocating is 
a policy of retrenchment where we uh, we redefine you know, what our vital national security interests are. In my opinion, they should be you know, the Western Hemisphere, Western, Western Europe, and Japan. And then we, those would be the areas where we would you know, threaten a nuclear response or you know, kind of pull our military forces back, back to. And then a lot of the other areas that are more peripheral, we would uh, withdraw our military forces and um, that would help strengthen, our, I think it would go far to strengthen us and, and deter our enemies from attacking us. Yeah, yeah. What, what, is, what is the likelihood that any of these uh, measures will be taken? You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I like to say I'm an optimist. Yeah, as, my, as our, our director, uh, Peter, Dr. Peter Price stated, he's kind of a glass half full kind of guy. I may be in between. I'm not, not necessarily as pessimistic as he is. I'm certainly as realist as he is. Um, I think the chances are pretty low unless we get um, a lot of our you know, leaders, I, like I've advocated President Trump to go on a speaking tour. You know, he's clearly stated his position you know, with Glenn Beck. If, if he could hold rallies you know, and criticize the Biden administration for being too provocative to Russia, Right. You know, not maybe not concerned enough with China, uh, but really just focus on the need for peace with Russia, the need for us to stay out of Ukraine, to limit, um, to you know, end NATO expansion and, and make a pro- public proclamation of that, and uh, pursue a policy of retrenchment, which would strengthen you know our national security uh, much more than the policy we have today. I think that would be really helpful. I think there would be a lot of Republicans in, in Congress that would kind of reawake and be like, oh yeah, I guess I believe that as well, instead of parroting the, the, the you know, liberal neocon propaganda line that we need to, we need to fight a war with Russia and Eastern Europe, right? Or provoke, provoke them to attack us. So how many people, how many, like you talk about the Republican congressman, how many of them do you think are really think that that is the best strategy? Or do you think that they're uh, somehow being uh, I don't want to be too forceful when I say coerced, but you know yeah. somehow they're being influenced um, into that. Or do you think they really are believing that that is a uh, best strategic move? So unfortunately, yeah, you know, I mean, um, America First conservatism kind of took, took the Republican Party by storm, and President Trump did. You know, he he made a lot of really commendable efforts to try to, you know do a lot of things that would help us right now, including pulling out of NATO, um, that he doesn't get credit for and he's criticized attack for mercilessly. Sure. Um, but unfortunately, since he's left, you know, the, a lot of the ideas that he's, he's, he's championed are kind of being suppressed, I would say, by Republic, kind of the old guard Republican leaders that were what I call Bush Republicans. Sure, um, yeah. You know, it's the establishment people, yeah. The establishment, yep. Yeah like Mitch McConnell and other folks that are, you know, much more hawkish against Russia uh, for no real good reason other than uh, they just want to continue the, you know, the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, without any regard to, you know, trying to break up um, the alliance between Russia and China, which I identified back in 2000 as the number one national security threat and priority um, of the 21st century. And I think that's that's being buried out. We'll, we'll see how things go. Hopefully they won't get any worse. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's a, it's a huge concern. And um, there, yeah, unfortunately there isn't a lot of 
hope for pursuing, you know, a, a better grant strategy until we kind of re-educate and kind of recapture uh, the information battle space, essentially, uh, to get the word out. Yeah, and that that is a huge, huge battle for sure, um, because the conditioning has been, the groundwork for that has been laid for so long. Um, yeah. I, I would argue, you know, that was one of the primary objectives of the Cold War, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I actually think a lot of uh, the Cold War was, uh, you know, there was so much uh, psychological um, testing that was done during that time that I, I feel has really surfaced now. Um, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of the propaganda propaganda tactics that were used then are, are being really weaponized in full, full steam now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know that, you know, everybody at that time was aware that that was at play, but right. I, I think that the, the power that be that I, as I like to call them, um, you know, certainly had some idea. that. that yeah. Happened. Going back to one of your previous questions. Um, I think that um, one of the biggest obstacles is that we've learned the, all the wrong lessons from the origins of the second world war. You know, uh, there's a lot of folks, I, I heard one Congresswoman today talking about how it's 1938 all over again, and this is, you know, this is Munich, it's is Munich, Munich 2, you know, the Munich Agreement, of course, was where um, British and the French uh, got together with Italy and, and they um, agreed to permit the, the German annexation of, of the Sudetenland, which was 95% German, you know, so Essentially, that was that was furthering the, the, the principle of self-determination, which was uh, one of Woodrow Wilson's uh, most laudable uh, principles in his 14 points that preceded the end of the of the First World War. Um, in Chamberlain, you know, he Neville Chamberlain, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, has been uh, villainized uh, wrongly, I, I would say, because he was absolutely opposed to appeasing the Soviet Union. The so, you know, he tried. They explore the uh, Britain and France tried to explore a um, a grand alliance that, that later formed with you know with Churchill at the head of England um, against Nazi Germany and the price that Stalin uh, re, you know requested to, for uh, for that alliance was control of all of Eastern Europe and Chamberlain said he absolutely would not ever agree to um, so allowing or supporting another country to take over another uh, another country against the wishes of its own people. And that's something that Churchill did with the Yalta Agreement. Of course, as I mentioned, the Yalta Agreement ended up uh, providing us with um, over half a century of, of, of peace. And so there were good, good um, outcomes to a very, uh, what I would say, immoral agreement. But, um, you know, I think we, we need to learn from history and the lessons of history are, are have not been learned. And, and as Bismarck, um, was once quoted, you know, saying, um, you know, if he who refuses to learn from the lessons of history is condemned to repeat it. Yep. Yeah. And I, I do think there's so many parallels uh, to uh, Germany in 1938. Uh, and, you know, even in terms of the, the recent, you know, the pandemic um, and a lot of those measures that were being used and then war following that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but just just as kind of a final point, um, so I believe the the lessons we should learn is is not that appeasement caused World War II, because actually appeasement, uh, the policy of appeasement uh, or accommodation of Germany 
um, didn't cause it. It was the abandonment of the policy of appeasement, which, which caused World War II when uh, Britain um, guaranteed, issued its military guarantee of, of Poland against, um, against Nazi Germany. Had we allowed, or, or had the, rather the British and the French uh, supported some kind of compromise where Germany got back uh, about a third of its lost territory uh, from Poland um, in terms of Danzig. Well, Danzig was never Polish, but at, at the time, but uh, the Polish quarter, then I think World War II would never have happened. It would have been a war between uh, Germany and, and the Soviet Union uh, exclusively, and, and one that could have lasted decades, um, you know, and, and I, I really believe that, you know, the best strategy as Sun Tzu, you know, the ancient Chinese military strategist stated, the best strategy is uh, to win without fighting. And yeah, for sure. To, yeah, the best way to win without fighting, or rather one of the best ways, I would argue, is to get your enemies to fight each other, kill each other off, or if not, fight each other to be focused on the threat posed by one another versus, uh, you know, any perceived threat um, that, that we pose to them. Well, well, I would argue that, that that is what our enemies want to do, have us do, um, it, but we should learn <laughs> from that yeah. and not engage. Yeah, yep. yeah that's, exactly. that, that's fascinating. That's a really uh, interesting point about appeasement because that's what you're always taught, right? Right. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. And I, I would also like to add that uh, I think we should probably learn something from Russia because, you know, Russia is really taking care of Russia right now. Yeah. Make it, they're yeah. making Russia great again, as some people say. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? China's doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. We should right. uh, definitely get back to them, make America great again, and uh, America first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I want to ask one more thing about how can we, because I, I, I really do feel that one of the, you know, all the strategies I think are super important. Um, but I think none of them get implemented or executed without the propaganda that's behind it. You do need right. the will of the people uh, to acquiesce. Um, so I, I guess I would put to you, what do you think are some of the measures that uh, people, uh, and you know, you, you can talk about you know, the uh, entities and the governments as well, but really I think individuals, how can we combat some of that propaganda? I'd like to empower the people if there is a way. Well, I mean, yeah, there absolutely is a way. And, and uh, uh, I, I would say that one of the best ways you can do that is to, to read some of my articles, uh, my latest articles on the national interest and kind of, you know, kind of and click on the links. So I have a lot of different supporting links. It's not like I'm, I'm saying that, you know, just believe me, I, I have, you know, a couple dozen links in each article probably that that link, uh, link to what other people are saying, uh, more renowned foreign policy and national security experts than I am uh, that kind of support the same kind of strategy. And so, um, yeah, the key is to, to first, you know, kind of educate yourself. And, and then once you're educated, it doesn't have to be like, you know, a matter of weeks or months or years, yeah. you can just read, read a few key articles and then send those along with Dr. Peter Price, um, you know, various books and articles that are available on our EMP task force website to uh, members of Congress mm -hmm. and state legislators as well. I mean, you know, certainly the foreign policy solutions, you know, aren't, aren't really worth talking about with uh, state legislative leaders, but in terms of state hardening the grid, you know, legislation, um, yeah. we found that that's, that it's, it seems like the chances are far higher to, to, you know, 
and because state legislators are so much more accessible to uh, the average citizen like ourselves um, to, you know, start a conversation and, and try to direct them to our, um, our state leaders, leaders to help uh, work, with, work together to, uh, to, um, to get these kind of um, solutions implemented in terms of uh, grid hardening legislation that, that actually fund the hardening of the grid or other critical infrastructure um, against EMP and cyber attack. Cyber attack being, of course, the, the most likely uh, means of warfare that we'll face. Uh, that kind of initially, you know, we've already, we actually have, according to um, former Defense Sec Obama Defense Secretary Leon Panetta, um, he said when he became CI director in 2009, he was told that the US was um, having 100,000 cyber attacks a day. And that was, that was, you know, over a dozen years ago. So um, we can only imagine how many hundreds of thousands of, of, of cyber attacks we may have may have uh, going on today on a daily basis. But um, obviously those are low level cyber attacks. They're sure. mainly dedicated to maybe installing back doors and stealing military technology and secrets. But the type of cyber attacks that I'm talking about are, are ones that uh, are, you know, potential existential threats, you know, um, for example, there are 300 uh, Chinese built transformers in our that have been installed by during the Obama Biden years in our um, electrical power grid. And China, you know, most likely has, you know, we discovered kind of backdoors, malicious software built into those transformers that could potentially be used to shut down the grid just with that threat alone, let alone, you know, super EMP satellites like the North Koreans have that could potentially shut us down with the press of the press of a button without any warning and potentially without U.S. leaders even knowing uh, what country attacked us. Wow, that, that's horrifying. That's it really is. Horrifying. Yeah. Uh, and even the the little, the, the we'll call them micro attacks, but I mean, even those, because as you said, they're creating, they could be creating back doors um, that only lead to, you know, easier access for the bigger. Yeah. So, exactly. yeah, well, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully we will not have to face that because what what would be is that that's what we can uh, close with. What if that does happen? What what will that mean, and how can we uh, recover from it? So, I mean, I've talked to cyber experts, and they've said that uh, China, in particular, has the ability to um, you know shut down our, our electrical power grid, our internet and perhaps even our um, early warning GPS satellites, um, potentially indefinitely. Um, they've you know, really enhanced their, they have, they're extremely capable from a, a cyber attack um, perspective. And then EMP, EMP would be even, even a, a more dangerous threat. Uh, cyber, of course, can be temporary. You can, you can, because what they do is they essentially can, um, they can they overwhelm our systems with so much data that it can't you know they shut down they can't they can't process it. So um, for example, when uh, I'm predicting that that uh, if and when um, Ukraine is invaded by Russia, um, the first thing they'll do is engage in a cyber attack uh, you know to kind of shut down their power and uh, communications and their command and control and the early warning systems. So, um, you know, they'll essentially be blinded uh, and unable to coordinate their, uh, the defense of their country against the Russian invasion. 
but the advantage of that is they, you know, if they were to occupy and take it over, they can turn, they can, as they take over certain areas, they could essentially restore the power and communications in, in the, the Russian controlled areas. And then um, the areas that are, that are outside their control, they could continue to, uh, to use cyber attacks to intimidate the, po the population into, um, you know, ending their resistance and ensuring their takeover. But with an EMP attack, there's, you know, there's uh, major damage that's done to, you know, computer chips and, uh, you know, electrical transformers and, and whatnot that would, would cost hundreds of billions, you know, perhaps even a few trillion to repair. And, you know, we've had a lot, we've had kind of situations like Puerto Rico where, you know, the power has been shut off by, by a hurricane and they've been without, you know, water purification and, you know, power, reliable power for over a year. But we had all the resources of the continental United States to help them restore it. Yeah. But if, the, if, you know, if this were to happen to the entire country, there wouldn't be any backup. We have 3%, uh, only 3% of our, of our, you know, transformers in reserve that, you know, in other words, if we lost 100% or even 80%, we have 3% to put back, you know, to like restore and replace. That's not nearly enough. And they take two oh. transformers take a couple of years to build. And there's only uh, a very few number of producers. Most um, mainly we get ours from Germany. Is there anything that can be done? Uh, I mean, obviously we want to prevent getting to that stage um, yeah. where we, you know, it's better to prevent the crisis than to deal with the recovery of a crisis. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if there are, should be or could be uh, both should and could uh, be measures to uh, strengthen the reserves of, of transformers and, you know, so that we could recover if such thing were to happen. Yeah, there's an app. I mean, there's a huge number of measures that we could take that would be very beneficial that would uh, serve to protect us. Obviously, yeah. hardening the, the grid against cyber and EMP attack is, uh, should be the number one priority. Okay. But that would take at least two years to accomplish. And it would. And, and that's assuming it's fully funded. Right. Right. If, uh, you know, because our, I mean, initially we could start with a, a two billion um, effort or and then expand it to, you know, some people have said it, uh, the price would be as high as 30 billion. Uh, but, you know, if you think about how how many trillions the Biden administration has been trying to expand, I mean, certainly with the five trillion, you know, supposedly one point seven five trillion, but it's actually five trillion, you know, build, quote unquote, build back better socialist uh you know, takeover plan, right. um, 30 billion is, is a, a small drop in the bucket. You know, it's like less than a thousandth of, of what that spending would be. And so we can easily afford, and even if we took it out of our defense budget, I would be more than happy. I would happy. argue that is defense, isn't that? Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, I would be more than happy to, you know, to reduce funding our, on our conventional military in order to, to build these strategic defense systems that um, are so much more critical. I mean, we could have a conventional military 10 times bigger than all, all of our enemies combined, and it wouldn't matter at all if they could take us down with a cyber EMP attack and, you know, cause our, our government to collapse in our society. For sure. And I would argue that we could take some of the uh, money that's currently be being spent on uh, diversity training in our military. <laughs> Yeah, right. Some of those programs can be defunded in favor of, uh, yeah, protecting yeah. our, uh, 
you know, cyber infrastructure and electrical. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're trying to, here in the AMP task force, we're trying to emphasize that this is a bipartisan concern. You know, I mean, this isn't, Should this be. isn't like a partisan wedge issue, and we don't want it to ever come across that way. Because uh, if you think about, you know, the danger of, of a super solar storm is, is very similar to what the, what liberal Democrats talk about, you know, in, in terms of climate change. So we actually include that, you know, it's a, it's a natural environmental disaster that could occur uh, in the event of climate change. And certainly in, in the case of an EMP or cyber attack, that could, you know, even a cyber attack could, could potentially take out our nuclear reactors and cause them to melt down if they don't have, you know, if the power is not restored within a few weeks. Right. So imagine the environmental disaster that would happen from that. And that, you know, that could occur from cyber EMP or a super solar storm. So um, if, if Democrats truly care about the environment as I, as I believe they do, this is, should be their number one priority. It should be, without a doubt. So what, what a great way to, to unify people, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Do you have anything else you want to leave us with that you want to add? And uh, of course, tell everybody where, again, where to find your articles. And Yeah, no, I just want to uh, thank you for having me on your show. I mean, it's shows like this that that are so important to educate uh, our citizens about, you know, these clear and present dangers that the media doesn't doesn't tell them about. And and even some, you know, some Republicans don't even highlight. So, um, yeah, very important. But in terms of, of what your listeners can do, I'd urge them to go to again to our website at uh, www.emptaskforce.us. And there you can find a donate button. You know, we, we are a nonprofit organization, even though we're a congressionally authorized board, we're a, a nonprofit. And so we need uh, we need more funding to, to, you know, finance our efforts to get the word out to, um, you know, to travel back and forth to Washington, D.C. to kind of, um, you know, motivate and, and incentivize our uh, uh, U.S. senators and members of Congress to, to pass this uh, critical legislation, um, as well as, you know, there's a, a lot of resources that you can um, kind of a, there's a volunteer uh, tab on our, our website that could also, um, you know, we'd love to have more volunteers. We have more and more state leaders that are, are kind of being formed uh, with every passing week. And so uh, there may even be a, a position in our state leadership team uh, for, for some of your listeners that might be really passionate about making a difference on this issue. Wonderful. Save, you know, potentially a couple hundred American lives, a couple hundred million if, uh, if this threat materializes. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Yeah. So hopefully people will get involved and uh, yeah, that would be, we need it. We really need it. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. And thank you so much for sharing this really incredibly valuable information with all of us. And for your Absolutely. Time. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.